Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we learn more about a bachelor's degree program at UBC Okanagan that is trying to preserve and promote Indigenous languages and meet the teacher, the professor, who's been the driving force behind it all. Remember when you couldn't find an electric vehicle to buy anywhere? Well, now reports out of the USA, there's actually a bit of a glut. So how did that happen? We find out. And why are tiny trucks imported from Japan called K-Trucks such a big hit in North America? Automotive writer Jay Kenna joins us to explain. We meet a Toronto woman who is the proud owner of a Guinness World Record for having the largest toothbrush collection in the world. That's right toothbrushes. How did it start? How did it grow? And what does she make of her sudden brush with fame? But first, protests continue near a Winnipeg area landfill site as the families of two murdered Indigenous women and their supporters continue to fight for the search of another landfill where they believe the remains of their loved ones are. The province says it's too expensive, unsafe, with no guarantees of success. Ottawa hasn't stepped in yet. We meet the cousin of one of the women, Morgan Harris, to find out why they vow to continue their fight until they can give their loved ones a proper burial. Let's talk about what's happening outside of Winnipeg these days. A Manitoba judge has suggested the two sides in a landfill blockade try to reach a compromise. Dozens of protesters have blocked access to the Brady Road landfill to demand a search of a different landfill where the remains of two murdered Indigenous women are believed to be. The city is seeking a court injunction to end that blockade. The judge adjourned the hearing until tomorrow morning and has now asked the two sides to try to reach an agreement. This blockade all started about six days ago as a response to the Manitoba government's decision not to fund a search of the Prairie Green landfill north of Winnipeg, where the remains of Mercedes Miran and Morgan Harris are believed to be. Families have been calling for the search of the landfill after Winnipeg police found the partial remains of Rebecca Contois last year in Winnipeg's Brady landfill. Jeremy Skibicki has been charged with first-degree murder in the deaths of Contois, Harris, Myran, and an unidentified woman called Buffalo Woman. Her remains have yet to be located. Now, Manitoba's Premier Heather Stephenson pointed to a study saying the search would cost about $184 million, pose safety risks and with no guarantee of success, but said if the federal government wants to proceed with a search of its own, it can. Now, this issue uh, was part of what was talked about today as chiefs gathered in Halifax. They're calling on Ottawa to commit to fund a search of the landfill. Kathy Merrick is Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba, Manitoba Chiefs, and she says because Ottawa funded a feasibility study into a possible search, it should commit to carrying out the work. Somebody's going to have to pick up those reins and ensure that, uh, that this work is done. Because if we're not doing the work, then we're saying it's okay to Canada to find Aboriginal women in the landfills, and it's okay to everybody, and that is so not right. That's Kathy Merrick, Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller, the federal one, says the province's refusal to support a search makes arriving at a decision this summer logistically impossible because Ottawa doesn't have jurisdiction, but that their commitment is, quote, firm. Well, joining me now is Melissa Robinson, cousin of Morgan Harris. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you. Tell me a bit about about your cousin. For for listeners who don't know the story, don't know much about her, uh, this is about a lot more than searching a landfill. This is about a family. Exactly. Um, so Morgan is um, my first cousin. Uh, she is mother to five um, beautiful children. 
uh, grandmother to one um, uh, little girl named Willow. And, uh, you know, it's important to us, and that's why, we, why we're sounding our ground. She right. needs to be and, brought and what, home. She needs to have a proper burial. Right. And, and, and what have you done? So the, 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 the blockade started in, because the families absolutely want to see a search of this particular landfill. I'm not going to use the word blockade. I'm going to say that we're protesting. We're protesting um, to demand that they search the landfill. What did you make of, I didn't, I mean, I I read about it, the the study that was done uh, and the reasons why the province uh, have said no. Uh, I I know you were very disappointed in meetings. I think you met with the premier. Uh, What was was that discussion like and, and what were the reasons pointed out to you? Her reasoning was um, the risks involved. Yet in that feasibility study, um, the the committee looked at everything from every angle um, and identified those risks and ways to go around it, you know, to keep the, the people safe that would be involved in doing this. So um, I, I don't buy it for, for a second. Um, I honestly believe it's just because she's cold and, uh, and doesn't care about our Indigenous people. Yeah, I mean that that is the, the 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 context of this whole conversation too. There's a lot of history behind this 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 one incident. I know for you it's about family, uh, but there's a bigger a bigger question at play here as well. I believe. Mm-hmm. What, what would you like be? to see? Yeah, well, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, what would that what would that be? I mean, you can. I, I think I think that that was sort of a rhetorical question. Let me let me ask it again. Uh, okay. Just, I mean, the frustration. I think is what I mean. I know this has been going on for quite some time. So the idea to start the protests is new, and that clearly represented that something had come to a head as far as you and the other families were concerned. Absolutely. See, it's coming down to to our people and and being treated as, as second-class citizens. Um, it shouldn't matter the color of your skin. It shouldn't matter of your background, you know, and, and it, if it was anyone else, you know, as, as we have seen from across the country, there has been landfill searches before. No feasibility study has had to be done. They've just gone ahead and done it. So why are we having to jump through all these hoops to bring not just one person home, but multiple women home? Yeah, I, I know that the uh, there'll be back. There's going to be people back in front of court tomorrow. What did you make of the of the decision today to sort of try and find some sort of agreement here between between the two sides? I, I was pretty happy with with the judge's decision. Um, he talked about reconciliation, um, so more or less with kind of you know standing by our side um, was what I took from it. Um, I, you know, it's hard to say. I believe that they will go forth with an injunction. But again, we're not we're not stopping anything. Um, You know, Brady Landfill is still open. They've still been operating. There is a secondary road that they could be using. Um, I, I don't understand what the problem is with us having a peaceful protest. Right. And in this case, I've, I've read that uh, that even if there is an injunction, you plan to continue this protest in, until that search is, is, is agreed to. 100%. We have been at, um, so we've named our encampment Camp Morgan after my cousin Morgan. Um, mm-hmm. And our First Nation Indigenous warriors who have overseen camp, been there 24-7, they have been there for 207 days now, uh, since December 18th. So, 
we're we're not just going to pack up and go now. We we have a teepee resurrected there. We have a wigwam. Um, you know, we have a sacred fire burning. Like th- this is all very important to not just my family, but to everyone else that has stepped up. Where do you, I mean, you know, there are sort of different parallel stories going. There's the injunction and, and the protests going on. There is this fight from the families for this, for the landfill to be searched. Um, you know, is the, I guess, is there a compromise that's short of searching the landfill? I guess there really isn't, right? No, no, there isn't. There's no compromise. Um, you know, the, the compromise came from the Manitoba premier uh, to put a monument on top of my cousin's dead body. Um I, to me, that yeah. was like a slap in the face. You know, How no, so? let's for... leave them there for the rest of eternity and, and throw a monument there. Absolutely not. No, we're, we're not budging on anything. They need to search that landfill. End of story. Right. And and the families are convinced that that that's that the search will result in what you're hoping hoping for, which which is which is to find uh, Morgan and to and to bury her properly. Hundred percent. Um, within that feasibility study, um, it, it, they, they really delivered 100%. Like, they, they can put exact location as to where, they, they, um, where Morgan and Mercedes are because they were transported in the same garbage can to Prairie Green. Uh, so they, they know the vicinity of where they are. They know how far down, how much layers is, is above them. Like, it is possible. They can be found. It's just it's our government that is stalling and holding this up. There was some I mean, this came up today in Halifax. Clearly, this has become a, a, an issue right across the country. National chiefs were talking about it. provincial chiefs were talking about it today. Do you feel like you're getting the support you need from 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 all corners at this point? hundred percent. Our you know, our grand chief, Kathy Merrick, um, our chief from our home community of Long Plain, Kyra Wilson, um, have been with us, have stood with us since day one. Um, we we love them to pieces, um, and you know they're they're in this for the long haul too. And and we yeah we we think the world of them. Melissa, at this point, one I mean, the minister has said that it's not their jurisdiction, so they can't do much. But what would you like to see the federal government do in this case? I'd like for them to to you know just take over, like. I'm sure to some degree they can override what our, what our provincial government is saying. So um, I'm hoping he does. Uh, you know, we've met with him on a few occasions now. Um, he's, you know, been very empathetic, uh, very caring. Um, and quite honestly, I, I'm hoping that's, that's the route he got, goes and, and does the right thing. What do you say to, to people who, who look at the money and, and look at the situation and say, well, you know what, you know, just just leave it be, right? Well, I mean, because I'm sure people, there's, I'm sure you've heard that. I'm sure people have said it. I've read it. Um, when, when you look at this fight, this, I mean, obviously, this is a fight you think is worth fighting for to the very end. But for those mm-hmm. who look at the dollars and the cents and so on, um, what do you tell them? How do you look at dollars when we're talking about, um, you know, people that are, that are mothers? That are that are cousins. They belong to families. You know, they are loved. Um, you know, and and when it when it is brought up, I ask them, how would you feel if that was your family member? You know, we, we shouldn't look be looking at it in any dollar amount. Um, you know, right. when we received the feasibility study with it being fifty some pages long, 
um, there was a few pages where it talked about, you know, the dollar amounts involved. And I skipped right past that because, honestly, we, we shouldn't even be considering that. How about just you, for you as a family? I mean, I know the, some of the details of, of the of what of the case, uh, the murder charges against this individual. Uh, this has been a really terrible time, I would imagine, right round for all of you. And here you are fighting, fighting just to mm-hmm. see if you can't. You know, I, I never tried to never use the word closure, but but perhaps it's appropriate here. I honestly, I wouldn't even call it fighting anymore. Now we're begging. You know, it's come down to us begging, like you know, like. Like it's been said, standing on the side of the road, bang, begging for closure for our family, begging for them to, to go and retrieve my cousin Morgan so that we can bring her home and have a proper resting place rather than in a land, landfill for the rest of eternity. And what have you said, to, I mean, just to, to, the, to her kids and so on? I mean, this, this has been the whole, the whole thing has been another example of, of, of just a system that sometimes leaves you scratching your head, I think. And, and uh, mm-hmm. just in terms of what do you, what about, you know, her children, her, she has a granddaughter now, right? I mean, there's, there's a mm-hmm. lot of loved ones out there who want to see this resolve somehow. Absolutely. Well, you know, and, and that's always going to be my thought is, um, you know, the girls, um, her two sons. Um, you know, Willow, who, who is her granddaughter, and then the future generations that are going to come, right? The future grandchildren. Um, you know, I'm sure one day it, it, it'll come up and, and they'll be like, well, where's, where's my grandma? Do I have one? Well, where is she? You know, how do you explain that to, to a child? Like, you know, you're, we're just continuing this, this trauma, you know, that, that we're, we're not going to get over. And um, yeah, it's, it's a tough situation. Like, you know, I think of, you know, my cousin, Crystal, um, who was Morgan's older, older sister, um, and, and how she always tried to look out for Morgan. And, you know, she just passed in February and, you know, she had to go to go to her death knowing that her sister's laying in a landfill, you know, but I, I said to her and the rest of the family said to her, like, we promise we're, we're not going to fight until she's brought home. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for, uh, for, for sharing this with us. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Let's go to Toronto now, where there was a break in that daylight shooting of that innocent bystander last week. A man has been arrested and charged with second-degree murder uh, in the death of a woman hit by a stray bullet in Toronto's East End last week. 32-year-old Damien Hudson made a brief appearance in court this morning by video. The shooting took place at a busy corner, Queen Street East and Carlaw, just east of the downtown. It began as an altercation, apparently, between three men just before 12.30 p.m., so lunchtime. Two of the men had handguns and shot at each other. A bullet hit 44-year-old passerby Carolina Hubner Makara. She later died from her injuries, leaving behind her young daughters aged four and seven. Now, Toronto police continue to search for two other male suspects, and they've also said that Damien Hudson, the one they've arrested, was out on two release orders at the time of his arrest, as well as three firearms prohibitions. The news brought relief and anger in the neighborhood where the shooting took place. That's pretty messed up, yeah. The violent offenders should be getting out so easy, right? Yeah, they need to do something with the bail system because it's too easy for to get bail. So, you know, if you do the crime, you got to do the time. Yeah, this is latest case, of course, adds some urgency to calls from Canada's premiers who've been meeting this week who say bail reform has become a top priority for them. Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson, the chair of the Council of the Federation, says reform is needed to address violence and crime. 
the federal government cannot further delay necessary bail reform. People in every province and territory should not have to wait any longer. Now, the federal government has introduced a bail to reform the bail system, or a bill, rather, to reform the bail system. It would place reverse onus on serious repeat violent offenders who would have to show the court why they should be released. It was presented in May. It's called Bill C-48. But it did not pass before the summer break, so it is not, uh, the changes have not come into effect yet. Joining me now is Ian McQuaig. He's a criminal defense lawyer with McQuaig Law. Ian, thanks so much. Hi. So tell me about, I mean, this case, um, you know, this is just going to pour more, more fuel on what is a very hot fire around this issue already. Uh, what to make, what to make of what we learned today? Well, you have to, first of all, you have to look at this as the whole story. And that, that, that context you played is very helpful. Number one, um, this is a person who, he did have a criminal record, but if you look back at the uh, decision of his last conviction, the judge also notes that he had a lot of challenges growing up. His father died of cancer when he was nine. 2015, he was assailed and shot five times, struggled with PTSD. And then there's a long list of all the positive things he's accomplished while in jail, completing school, completing work. He's got the support of a community. And so you, you can't just say, you know, he's a criminal record and that's it. The, anyone right. who released him on bail would have also heard all those sort of positive things that were going on in his life. But at the same time, he is arrested by by, uh, what I see. He's arrested in April or March last year. He's not released on bail until August. That means that he has sat in jail waiting for his disclosure, waiting to be able to hire a lawyer, waiting for the Crown to be in a position to move the matter forward and set a trial date. And he's probably sat there long enough that even if he were convicted, he's already served a complete sentence. Our justice system is so underfunded. And then so when you hear these premiers saying bail reform can't wait, what really can't wait is they need to properly fund our justice system. He should have had his his matter addressed, completed, and, and then he wouldn't have been on bail anymore. Right. So th- so looking at the problem from a different perspective, I mean, I, again, every time this happens and you look at, I mean, clearly you, the victim in this case, it's going to cause a lot of people to stand up and say the system is broken. And that's what we're hearing already. And and the way you explain it, of course, is that where is it broken is, is, is perhaps the, because if there were firearms prohibitions here, obviously they weren't being enforced. Um, you know, you are, I guess what you're saying is that the system is not able to keep tabs on the people it perhaps should be keeping tabs on, even when they're out. Well, right. And remember that when, you're, when you are convicted of a criminal offense, the state can intervene in your life and they can enforce treatment on you, in some, you know, to some extent. They can put conditions on you. They can restrict your liberty. But when he's in jail for six months as a presumed innocent person, he's basically just warehoused there with no programming, no intervention, no support. Until eventually we just have to decide, you know, it's time we let you go, right? So all of this pretrial custody is essentially a waste. It's a a wasted opportunity where the Crown, if he was in custody after being convicted, he would be offered some some programming, some support. He would hopefully be rehabilitated to some extent. But pretrial custody, none of that happens, right? And then we let him out just because we have to, because we don't have the capacity to actually 
hear his matter, to let him make full answer in defense. He might not be guilty of these things he was on bail for. There's a real possibility that... And he's still still just the accused... He's just the accused in this case as well. I mean, herein lies the issue. I think people, every time one of these episodes happen, this is the second one now in about a week and a half in Toronto. People are are angry about this. Uh, there is this perception that there is a revolving door. But obviously, within the criminal justice system, no one has a crystal ball to know who is what, what offender. Uh, and you just mentioned the background of this particular uh, person. What offender is going to reoffend, right? Or what what person within the system is going to reoffend once back out there? It's only in hindsight that we get to that we get to figure out figure no, that out to some extent. That, that's absolutely right. And you have to understand, we we in Toronto here, we just got a new courthouse downtown, and we just got a new bail center. And again, you know, not to harp on it too much, but we have a premier there saying it's time the federal government did bail reform. Our bail center is so understaffed right now that while most courtrooms in our city would close at 4.30 or 5 o'clock and the staff would pack up and go home, the JPs, the justices of the pieces, the judges, the the clerks, and the administrative staff in the bail center are often sitting till 8 p.m. They're so understaffed. They're so under-resourced. And that's the people who are making the risk assessments in all cases about whether someone's released, whether someone's detained. And it is literally the most important stage of any criminal proceeding to decide whether or not a person's going to wait in custody or be out and, and, and about meeting with their lawyer and, and you know making full answer and defense in a position to fully participate in their trial. This is the most important decision. And this is the least well-funded, the least well-organized and courthouse in in our particular city i think that's generally the case around the province and probably the country and and the premiers are not standing up and saying well we're going to spend more money on the bail system we're going to equip our courts better to make better decisions we're going to give them more resources so that these hearings are are properly considered if there is a revolving door it, it lays at the feet of an underfunded justice system not at, at lax bail laws. Right. Again, something that's not as politically expedient, though, right? I mean, therein, no, therein no, lies part of the problem. Yeah. Listen, it's, it's a lot easier to, to, to basically say, oh, this guy was a record. He, he committed violent offenses before. And uh, I, I can create some outrage. And whether that's getting ratings because you're part of the media or getting votes because that appeals to a particular constituency, certainly that is the easy way to address this. Um, because the other thing is, what I'm talking about is funding the justice system properly means you're probably going to pay some more taxes. And, and who wants to stand up and say, hey, you know, I can make the city safer. I'm, I'm just going to charge you something for that. No one wants to do that. The, the other point, and I don't want to go too long, too long about this, is we also have to consider how generally we regard risk in society. Um, we kill a lot of pedestrians and a lot of cyclists on our streets. Um, and that is just considered to be part of the risk of being in a big city, right? No one's happy about it, but we all accept that sometimes things go wrong. Right. I mean, this this would. I mean, people having a gunfight in the middle, Queen and Carlaw in the middle middle of the day probably does probably might be a no, bit no. different. But I get your I get your point. My, I suppose if you had is, if you had to change one thing, it would be money, right? Fund the system properly so the justice right. system can act expediently and make sure 
people such as this gentleman, perhaps, or this person, perhaps, are processed through the system faster, period. Well, that's right. But the other thing is, don't take every time the system doesn't work perfectly and condemn the entire system. Just like every traffic death doesn't mean we don't drive our cars anymore. Every traffic death doesn't mean we reduce the speed limit to 20 kilometers an hour, which in fairness would completely solve the problem. We don't do that because we accept that sometimes the system doesn't work perfectly. The bail system here may not have worked perfectly, but it doesn't mean that we need to generate all of this outrage and demand that we burn down the entire system. It means we have to accept that, sure, more resources, more careful decision-making, all of these things would help. But I don't think any one of us can can look back and say uh, in August of last year that this particular Crown and lawyer, defense lawyer, and justice of the peace uh, made the wrong decision that day. A reminder, there are no easy answers to complex problems. Uh, Ian, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Good news for lots of businesses out in Canada today. The 13-day strike by some 7,400 port workers across BC has come to an end. And their employer said that today, late today, work would resume uh, late this afternoon. The workers have been on strike since July the 1st. You probably heard about it. Halting shipments at about 30 ports in BC, including Canada, Canada's largest, the Port of Vancouver. Uh, the deal came after the federal labor minister, Seamus O'Regan, ordered a mediator to issue terms of a possible settlement. And today he said the strike is over. Parties are finalizing details for the resumption of work at the ports. It's, of course, uh, subject to ratification by both the union and the employers. There are about 63,000 shipping containers waiting out on the water, apparently, to be unloaded. We spoke to a business owner last night who was down to his last bottle. He has a beverage company, Will Routley. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's super disappointing. We're just really counting the days, counting the minutes so we can get back on track. It's a tough one when it's it's the busy summer season. You know, that's when it really hits you. Um, and there's nothing we can do about it. Everyone's just watching the news and hitting refresh again and again and again. Well, good news when you hit refresh uh, about 10.30 this morning. So should the federal government have stepped in sooner? How to mitigate the risks of these kinds of work stoppages in the future? Or was it a potentially messy situation well handled? Peter Hall is a professor in urban studies and geography at Simon Fraser University. Peter, thanks so much. Uh, nice to be with you this evening, Ben. So tell me a bit about the resolution here. I mean, this seemed like a, a pretty delicate balance for Ottawa because they couldn't sort of go in gangbusters. They had to try and allow these two sides to come to a deal. But the heat was on. There were a lot of people very upset about how long this took. Yeah, I I, I think they handled it well, ultimately. Um, they, they, they were engaged early on. They were starting to take more and more pressure um, from, uh, you know, from particularly from uh, businesses. And... Um, Better to have this deal um, that uh, both parties can live with than one that's imposed. Right. I mean, in this case, I guess that's it. You want the, the two sides to come to their own agreement so that this doesn't flare up again. Well, exactly. And, you know, four years gives a, gives a, a fair amount of certainty. There's some, you know, there's some difficult long-term issues for the industry. And um, um, hopefully um, hopefully there's something in the fine print of the detail of the, of the deal about how they can, you know, look at look at some of those more kind of long-term issues around skills and so on. 
Right. I mean, I guess we'll find out the details. I know one of the big concerns was automation, obviously, uh, for, for jobs and with port expansion and so on. A lot of talk this week, though, about, I mean, I guess it, this harkens back a bit to blockades and so on, uh, about critical infrastructure and how we should treat it. Is this a situation where, um, such as these 7,400 workers, should it be an essential service? I mean, it, it, that's a big step, but people were making some pretty loud arguments about that this week. Yeah, you know, I I think I, the 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 beverage bottler who is going to lose product is um, one of the small category, and they really are a small number of folks. A small category of folks who had direct, real, measurable losses from this. Um, the vast majority of the impact of this um, kind of disruption, it's inconvenient. It causes um, it causes disruption to the normal way of doing things, but it doesn't destroy the value, and that's that's I think a crucial thing. If you've got a beverage and you need to get it in a bottle and you don't have any bottles, that's a real loss of value. But if you if you're um, if you're buying a new kitchen sink, you can wait three months for the next kitchen sink. It's not pleasant, it's not convenient, but it's not the end of the world. So um, so I think. I think that uh, the kind of more modest approach of the federal government was appropriate here. Right. And, and because this is part of a bigger picture, right? I mean, we think of each of these disputes and we look at them each uh, through, through their individual lens. But there, mm-hmm. is a, there is a lot of labor negotiations going on in this country right now. The government's involved in, in, in a fair few and uh, they just have to watch out where they, I guess they have to set a precedent and figure out how they're going to navigate this situation broadly. Yeah, I mean, I think I, th- I think that's I think that's right. Um, you know, the the the, the, the essential service um, call, or the you know, essentially, which is a call to say that there, you know, that there there can be some sort of suspension of collective bargaining rights. It, that imposes its own kind of costs because people who are in those industries tend to earn a lot more um, uh, to compensate for the fact that they don't have. Um, these these normal collective bargaining rights. So, do we want that? Um, and do we want to live in a country where um, we don't give parties time to work it out like adults and um, and come in with uh, you know I'm sure there was a pretty stern warning behind the uh, the the you know the 24-hour mediation. Um, if if one of the parties had rejected it and the other party accepted it, and, and that might still happen, I suppose. I mean then. You know, then, 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 then I think the consequences will be clear. But do we want to? Do we? Do we really want to move in and say to employers and employees, no, you don't have a chance to work it out in a way that uh, that's going to secure industrial peace? It's, it's it seems irresponsible to me. Right. That's what I made a lot of a lot of a lot of the criticism. I mean, it, it seemed there was a bit of a, a nonchalance about 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 the minister's approach to this early on. But I, I gather now, when we look at it, twelve days ultimately, thirteen days, is not a long time to clear up what could have been a pretty messy situation. These two sides were not saying nice things about each other four days ago. Well, that's right. That's right. And 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 it's cleared up for the next four years. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that I think the party should really think about and maybe, that maybe even the federal government should think about is, is, you know, once everyone gets back to work, once a bit of, the, you know, once the backlog is cleared, spend a bit of time to take a step back and think about um, how the industry is going to deal with automation. Um, this is not the only um, industry on the coast here that is struggling to find skills. 
Um, you know, we've got uh, we've certainly got that in BC Ferries. We know that uh, the procurement contracts for the uh, you know for for C-SPAN are taking in a lot of the skills that are also needed um, on these terminals. So you know, let's take take a while to look at those issues um, and come up with uh, with a with a with a, with a long term solution. But um, saber rattling isn't going to get us there. No. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Have a good evening. You know, I think it was about a year ago, or maybe even more recently, if anyone wanted an electric vehicle, forget it. You couldn't find one anywhere. And then I was reading this week, this article out of the U.S., that there's now been a bit of a glut in the U.S. of EVs. Now, not every EV, but certain EVs, not enough buyers, apparently. Cox Automotive experts highlighted the swelling EV inventories during a recent mid-year industry review for journalists and stakeholders. Uh, EV sales, which account for about 6.5% of the U.S. auto market so far this year, are expected to surpass 1 million units for the first time. That's the good news. In fact, they found that 51% of consumers in the U.S. are now considering either a new or used EV, and that's way up from 2021. But the stock has gone up 350% this year to more than 92,000 units, and that's a 92-day supply, three months basically, nearly twice the industry average. So what exactly is going on? To talk about that and much more, uh, Jay Kenna is back with us. He's an automotive and travel writer. Jay, thanks so much. Welcome back. Oh, Ben, it's so good to hear your voice again. Good. It's been like a few Indeed. weeks. It's it awesome. is. It has been. I heard you took a big road trip while, while you were away. Um, I, today was day one, and I drove from Mississauga to Sault Ste. Marie, so it's about eight hours, and um, going kayaking tomorrow and Saturday, and a little bit of Sunday before I head back home, and it's summer, it's road trip season, and I, used a, I used a gasoline car, which right, is a good segue. Right. <laughs> as one would, as one perhaps would on a longer trip like that, given the infrastructure, the EV infrastructure in this country so far, at least. So tell me about this article, because it was interesting. The headline was obviously an attention grabber, right? You know, EV yeah. glut or whatever it was. But this is a pretty specific issue because uh, I gather a lot of different car makers are putting their EVs on the market. Not everyone wants them or they're expensive. And I, I guess we're, we, but is that exactly what's going on or is it even stranger than that? Uh Two-pronged approach from what I've heard and seen. Uh, you're bang on with the first one. It is expensive. Now, everything's expensive now. You know, it's eggs, it's raw materials if you want to redo your basement by yourself, and it's cars, and it's batteries. So price is a big fear factor. And the second thing is transition. Nobody likes change. Even though it is being positioned as for the better, it's too drastic of a step. It's like quitting smoking right now instead of researching what will my behavior changes be like um you know what symptoms will i have and thankfully there's hybrids which are a good you know stepping stone to go from gas to alternative to fully electric but i think people don't want to spend the money and yes most if not the almost majority of people who have evs will have a level two charger in their garage but public charging sucks full stop. And right. that's a bit of a turn. Right. And, and I guess on the, there's also, I mean, it's a supply and demand issue. On the supply side, a lot of automotive makers, I guess they've solved some of their supply chain issues, um, or there's just been a lot of these in the pipeline, and all of a sudden they're hitting the market. Now, what kind of, I mean, Tesla is not involved in this, by the way, because they sell direct to consumers, so this wasn't involved in the research. Um, but what kind of what kind of EVs are out there that people 
aren't buying right now? The Mustang Mach-E. And I think it's really? a fantastic vehicle because it's a it's an SUV. It it gives you cargo space and it fits five adults and it, it does a lot of the things and it's got some, you know, pretty solid range numbers. But it's also really expensive. Um, and what do they go like for? What do they I remember when it came out with the price, but it's it's really it's is it how high is it? Uh, you can the way if you, if you want to get it fully dressed up, you're looking at almost six figures. Right. Yeah, and like yeah. it's I think Ford played on the Mustang heritage incorrectly. I give it a completely different name, but they're like, hey, we make a Mustang and it's great, so let's just electrify it, make it a completely different vehicle, and hope the nostalgia kicks in. But, you know, back to the nearly million sold that you mentioned a couple minutes ago. Yeah, that's good and great. Um, manufacturers that made EVs in 2021, 2022 saw this big influx of attention. And they're like, all right, let's just go all in and make a ton of these things. And it's not really their fault because it's a new thing. And you don't have any previous sales sheets to go off of for any other track records or any other metrics. Like People like this stuff. It's different. Let's just dump as much of our resources as we can into making them. And, well, nothing can really change, right? What are the odds of things changing? Well, <laughs> here we are, Ben, and things have changed. Yeah. Uh, what what could the outcome of this be? Could it be lower prices? Uh, what would, Normally when there's a supply and demand issue, if the supply is heavy and the demand is, is, is growing but not high enough, prices come down. What could we see here? Because I gather a lot of these companies, and it's mostly those high-end EVs yeah. that we're talking about, right? Uh, the expensive ones, uh, the you know the BMWs and so on. Uh, but what could happen here? Do you think to those? I guess one of two things: either the car makers say, "Ah, maybe we'll take a step back," or let's lower the price and make them more attractive. It's it's going to have to be the price thing because of the mandates mm-hmm. coming in for 2030, 2035, 2040 um, for a gradually stepped transition to full EV. Um, I don't think anyone can hit Control Z and undo. <laughs> the EVness, if you will, <laughs> of their strategy. Um, you know, every day these cars are on dealer lots, they're losing money, they're depreciating. Um, and I think consumers will play the waiting game because some of them genuinely do want the EVs, but they're like, well, you know, knock off 10 grand and you got a deal. And no one's going to say yes to that now, but you got a car sitting on a lot for 90, 120, 150 days collecting dust and, uh, something's got to give and right now price is the only thing that can give like you can't say oh well you know i'll send this back to the factory put on a free sunroof for you and then bring it back and and then you'll take it yeah once the car is here the car is here there's no takesies backsies (laughs) it's a cute way to say it like the car's on the lot the way it the color the spec the trim right and there's a buyer for every car says the salesperson's motto um, yeah, cut that price, knock off you know five percent a month or whatever it is until you can get the uh, the keys handed over and that car off the lot. But you bring up a really interesting point. A lot of these vehicles are brand new. Uh, mm-hmm. People have never seen them before. They don't know much about them. They can read sort of the reviews from people like yourself and so on, but they have never. They don't don't know anyone who owns one. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of trust to be put into it. And if you're going to part with you know eighty thousand dollars, that's an awful lot of trust to put into a vehicle that you don't really know much about. And that's it. And in a lot of cases, um, the gasoline version is very similarly priced. So you, you go with, well, I know that the gas version will get me 500 kilometers in distance, and it takes, I don't know, what, four or five minutes to refill a full tank of gas. 
as opposed to, well, if I could find a public charging space that actually works, it'll take half an hour. So a lot of the unknowns, a lot of the time, a lot of the, it, it's change and people don't generally accept change smoothly or quickly for that matter. And, and nor should they do your digging, find out if it's right for you. And, you know, if you, sometimes people will buy an EV or some alternate fuel vehicle, if their neighbor, their buddy, their colleague, their somebody in their in their circle has one, they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, Ben, this is a great thing. You should try it out. You should consider buying one." That's easier than, like you said, reading reviews and watching videos. Because, well, that's fine for someone you don't know, but you get you know a lot of free assurance from people in your circle, and I think it helps in the buying cycle. Yeah, I, I guess Tesla's. I mean, you know, it, it, I guess Tesla's sort of found a slight way by being first on the block. Tesla's sort of found a way around that, since generally you know someone perhaps who has one, right? Or you've you've seen enough yeah. of them around to get an idea of what they're all about. Well, exactly right. There's like you know, their charging network alone would be a dominant reason why people will lean towards Tesla because it's it's huge, it's massive, it works almost all the time as opposed to what we have for non-Teslas. And it's interesting because some of the manufacturers have started teaming up with Tesla and yeah. saying, can we use your charging network? And Tesla's like, well, sure you can. Here's the price and off you go. And that little investment, well, a lot of investment up front will help these manufacturers sell EVs a lot quicker. It's got a 10-foot bed. You know, I can put racks, I can put lumber. You can do anything with them. The sides fold down. It's a dually. It's a five-speed turbo diesel. It gets almost 30 miles to the gallon. Yeah, that was a, a proud owner of a Japanese mini truck called a K truck. That's from a news report out of Hawaii. Uh, they're very popular, uh, and, and as one article put it, uh, just as tiny homes are taking America by storm, now tiny trucks made in Japan are becoming increasingly popular too. They're about eleven feet long and less than seven feet high, and they evolved from three wheel trucks based on motorcycles after the Second World War. There's a whole bunch of different ones. They're not expensive. You do have to import them from Japan, I believe, and the rules around that vary depending whether you're here. Or in the U.S., uh, Jay Canna, automotive writer and travel writers, with us this half hour talking cars. I, I love this story about these mini trucks because I've actually seen a few of them around. But I, what really <laughs> I thought was great about them is that they're really popular in rural America. So they're places where back in the day people would not buy Japanese vehicles, right? But these ones are super popular because they're so convenient and so cheap to run. The smallest vehicle that's somewhat functional now is a Ford Maverick or a Hyundai Santa Cruz, you know, both expensive, small pickup trucks. But when you compare it to the K car, you know, K car can do everything you need it to in those farming areas. Or if you have big property and you need something small to get into the backwoods or whatever difficult to get into spot that you need a set of wheels for, this K truck does it. And it does it so well. They're, 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 I mean, first of all, they're right-hand drive, which in of itself, to think of people sort of driving around rural Alberta in a right-hand drive little Japanese truck is, a, is, is, I mean, but you can see why it makes sense. But you need to – one of the things I found interesting is in America, it's a 25-year import uh, law. Here, I think it's 15. Uh, but mm -hmm. they're being imported. They're, these are used vehicles being imported from Japan. They're so easy to fix because they're so small, and there's hardly any parts compared to even, the, like I said, the, the Ford Maverick, even a Ford Ranger. Um, you know, smaller footprint, um, and I think at a five thousand dollar cost, even if you sink five thousand bucks into getting it fixed or repaired or upgraded to the way you want it to, it's still a heck of a bargain compared to buying a new truck or even a used truck 
um, regardless of the size. It's it's complete usefulness. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and I, I've, I've seen more of them. Um, they're actually deceptively large. I mean, decept- in, in the sense that they, they can carry a lot of stuff. I know. And that just, it's, it's a little puzzling. And shout out to the engineers for these K-trucks for doing such a bang-up job and small footprint, big functionality. Right. And it's just having the right amount of vehicle. Like, I think at least half the people who drive pickup trucks don't use them for pickup truck-esque things. They're not towing, they're right. not hauling. They just don't like a minivan or they don't like an SUV, but they want to be higher up. And it's it's puzzling. I'm not quite sure I understand the mentality behind it, but people like trucks. People love trucks. Trucks are all over the place. But if you need a small footprint but need to do a lot of things with it, um, I can't think of anything better than a K-car right now. Or sorry, K-truck. Are they... A K truck, yeah. Are they easy to import? I, I looked. I mean, obviously, I was reading. Others. There seems to be quite a few people out there who will help you do it if you want. <laughs> yeah. In that case, trust the experts, right? If right. it was, if it was that easy to do, I think we'd all be doing it. But import laws for anything, uh, let alone vehicles, are extremely challenging. There's a lot of fine print. There's a lot of back and forth. Um, you know, I would happily pay an import company who specialized in this. You know, not quite blank check money, but I'm like, hey, if this is going to cost an extra 2000 bucks to get something that's going to save me time and money and potentially make me money in a couple of years, a couple of months, by all means, I will happily have someone who knows what they're doing do it so I don't get any kind of issues You know, when the truck lands. I go, oh, Jay, did you know that you have to do this, this, and this, and it's an extra X amount of dollars? Right. Well, you're probably, Jay, thank you as always. Have a great road trip. Thank you. Well, let's head to Kiev right now. Uh, NATO leaders wrapped up their talks in nearby Lithuania yesterday and started to head off. As they did, there were attacks on the Ukrainian capital again last night. Another reminder that only one country whose leader was there as a guest, as a matter of fact, is truly in the middle of a war right now. Ukrainian anti-aircraft units engaged attacking drones for the third consecutive night in and around Kyiv. Now, that you think that would mitigate the problem, right? It doesn't. It triggers fires, falling debris uh, in several areas, and at least one person was killed by that debris when those drones are taken out. Uh, it came as Ukraine got some of what it was looking for from NATO leaders, but certainly not everything. Ahead of the summit, uh, they were looking for more substantial, a more substantial timeline for joining the alliance rather than some vague promise of someday becoming a NATO member. It was backed by some, including some in Eastern Europe, but other big countries, the US, Germany amongst them, were reluctant to really make those concrete commitments while that war is still going on. And it was the cautious approach that won out. But there's also some other stuff. They got some promises of more weaponry. They got some training promises from Canada. We'll be training officer cadets in this country country um, in Quebec City or near Quebec City uh, or Quebec generally, Petawawa, not Petawawa, but uh, in saint jean richelieu I believe. Uh, the alliance is also now hosting something called a NATO-Ukraine Council, where Kiev gets a seat at the table with all other NATO members and partners. So some progress, but not everything they wanted. And here we are. I mean, the war has been grinding on now for more than 500 days. Uh, and I thought it was time we got a, some insight from what it's like on the streets of Kiev. To help us do that is Canadian Michael Borsicu, who I knew when I used to report from Ukraine uh, back uh, nine years ago now. He's a global affairs analyst and a senior fellow now at the Atlantic Council. Mike, thanks so much. Welcome back. Pleasure to be with you. 
just the reaction in Kiev. I would imagine that expectations were were both high and there was skepticism as this NATO summit began. It's over now. What's been the reaction on the ground there? Yeah, well, um, I think people have learned to keep expectations low. Um, I think that, of course, everyone here in public opinion polls back me up on this, uh, want Ukraine to become a member of NATO. The polls are overwhelmingly in favor of that, backing President Zelensky. And, of course, there's also big support for joining the EU. That's something that's been you know, on the table here for quite some time. Um, I think people are still coming to grips with what happened because it was a bit confusing, Ben. I mean, on the one hand, you know, President Zelensky showed up in Vilnius very angry and, you know, ready to to argue. And then I think they managed to talk him away from the cliff a little bit, Biden and others. And uh, he sounded a lot more diplomatic at the end. However, there was um, a strange moment when um, one of the British reporters asked him about what Ben Wallace, the UK def- uh, Defense Secretary, allegedly said is that, you know, Ukraine is not grateful enough. They look at these defense delivery, de- arms deliveries as like an Amazon delivery service. Right. So that threw Zelensky off quite a bit. Um, and um, I, I think what that may do is kind of change the tone of the way the administration is speaking, because um, they need to realize as well that um there is fatigue, not only, only happening here, but elsewhere in the world. There are other emergencies, other priorities, uh, economic stress in many, many places, climate stress. So um, these are all competing demands for any uh, you know state purse, uh, whether in Ottawa, Washington, or whatever. But um, I, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the real overwhelming sense I'm getting here is people just want this border end. And they want it to end soon because uh, they're getting really tired of it. So that's the main thing. They will come around to understanding why Ukraine can't become a a member of NATO right now, because, of course, it would put um, uh, 30 or so member states in direct military conflict with Russia. So um, I think Zelensky is coming back to a, you know, Ukraine that is understanding what happened. But uh, the main thing will be to bring an end to this war, and how that happens, we we still don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I've covered I've covered a NATO summit before. These are like every other summit; they're political affairs, uh, and it felt like uh, like Vladimir Zelensky went in there, sort of expressing the frustration of, of what he's hearing on the ground and his own frustration mm-hmm. with the pace of aid and so on. Even though the aid has been substantial, obviously over over the last uh, right. you know, year and a half, but but clearly, I mean, you, you sense that frustration from them that. That within Ukraine, the the way they think this war will come to an end quickly is to put more pressure on Russia, not to sort of hedge bets, right? Yeah, well, the pressure uh, will have to be. I mean, either way, however it ended up in Vilnius, uh, Russia would have played it their way. Right. <laughs> so, um, but I think what's really going to be really really important here is for Ukrainians to get most everything they're asking for. But that is really going to include longer range uh, missiles and they can't get those f-16 jets soon enough um an announcement did come out of uh, vilnius that ukrainian pilots will be trained on the f-16s in eastern european countries so that's really really good news hopefully that will speed it up because what's needed here is the full envelope so you have the tanks you have the armored vehicles you have the air defense systems and then you have the jets for air cover and then, uh, you know, the experts say that's when Ukraine can really put its uh, 
counteroffensive in, into play. The other thing I got to mention being here, Ben, mm-hmm. is just the toll on the economy. I mean, I haven't been to Kiev for a few months now. I would have thought that by now things would have bounced back, but it's still very, very much a city, a capital city on induced coma. Uh, lots of uh, places closed. You can really tell the lack of foreigners here. Places basically have to close, you know, bars, restaurants at nine or 10. I see a lot of places for rent. Uh, and, you know, kind of anecdotally from small, medium-sized business owners, a, a lot of them are saying, you know, we can go on maybe another year or so, but that's going to be it. So um, it's good that these recovery conferences are coming. Uh, you know, the one that was held in London, Canada was represented there. But I think there's also going to have to be done some thinking a few blocks from here where the presidential administration is on how to uh, bring the war to an end or to some kind of conclusion. That'll eventually happen at some negotiating table, perhaps in Turkey. Uh, and, you know, people are also... Uh, questioning whether Ukraine might um, reduce its uh, goals. What I mean by that is maybe not saying victory only means reclaiming Crimea as well, because a lot of military experts say that's a really tall order to to aim for. So we'll see. Um, right now, it's really, really important for the West to keep supplying Ukraine. Uh, they can't have a day or two without enough ammunition, things like that. That's only going to give the Russians an advantage. Yeah, just the, when we saw it happen, we both saw it happen in eastern Ukraine. You know, the toll of war, the toll of conflict yes. plays out on the streets, on the main street, right? You you see everything start to disappear. Businesses pack up. People yeah. run, out, run out of patience with the pace of this. And one would always expect that to happen in Kyiv, too, unfortunately. I mean, I know there's we talk to people and it's more bustling than you'd expect, but you had more attacks last night, right? I mean, that threat is always there as well. We did. We did. And sadly, it was um, what, what happened. It was another wave of... Uh, Iranian-built drones, the so-called Shahid drones, and um, what tends to happen, the Ukrainians have become very good at shooting them down, but then you have this explosive debris coming down, and it struck an apartment building, I believe there was one death, some injuries, and um, this one happened a bit earlier than usual, about one o'clock in the morning, but it's very disruptive to people's sleep. I popped my head out the window, I'm not supposed to do that, but I saw other people you know, at their windows and, you're, you know, you're supposed to take shelter. There was also a bit of a controversy here not long ago where uh, it, there was quite a heavy attack of drones and missiles and uh, people, at least one family, tried to get into a bomb shelter. It was locked. So that caused a controversy between the city administration and the um, national government. But these 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 are horrible things to happen. It's also psychological warfare um, it's it's very very tough on people. There was one other thing, by the way, Ben. I heard uh, yesterday. I was at um, a meeting of the East uh, Europe Foundation, which is doing doing fantastic work here. For example, building bomb shelters for schools. Is um, there was a comment made yesterday about where will Ukraine end up demographically after the war? As you know, millions of people fled, including a lot to Canada. Pre-war, the population was what maybe forty million or so. Now, some people are saying they're lucky if it's going to go past 24, 25 million. That's a huge, huge loss for any country, that proportion of people gone. 
Michael Borsicki is a global affairs analyst and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's with us tonight from Kiev. I don't know if you saw this. There is a there is an editorial in the Wall Street Journal today that is very, very uh, critical of Canada at NATO. It basically says if there were a junior table at the summit, that's where uh, Prime Minister Trudeau belonged. Uh, you know, I, I heard President Zelensky thank Canada yesterday for for its contribution mm-hmm. to the war effort. Th- this is a, this is a bit of a strange one because it depends where you sit, I guess. But Canada is certainly coming under some criticism globally for not meeting its spending uh, commitments at NATO, and deservedly so. Um, I tweeted that a few days ago, where Canada is what is it a little bit over one uh, percent or so, one point three ish, yeah, one point three spent yeah. on military where it should be close to 2%. And um, hey, Ottawa, if you're listening, we have an Arctic uh, frontier. And it's something that is not only in the crosshairs of Russia, but also big time, big time China. So it's really time that we upped our game there. Another thing, and I included this in a re- my recent CNN opinion piece, I wrote a piece on the US uh, making that controversial decision to provide cluster weapons uh, to Ukraine, is that um, one of the things here, and I really, as a Canadian, and am appalled at how the Canadian government fumbled the initial response to the war, and that is uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was delirious about the impact of sanctions. He said, that's the way to go. That's really going to punish the Russians without realizing that the Russians have been working quite some time in cahoots with the Chinese to kind of inoculate their economy from Western sanctions. The other thing that was an embarrassment um, in Vilnius, but it's, it seems wherever uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie goes, uh, she embarrasses the country. If she was asked directly, you know, what's your definition of the end of the war? And she didn't even have a proper response for that. And I think you would have thought by now that that's something Canada would have, have gotten straight in their messaging. So one more thing, uh, because I'm just literally two blocks away from the Canadian embassy. Yeah. I, mean, I walked by the other day and there's a big note on the front. Sorry, we're not, we're close to uh, Canadian consular services. So if yes, you're a Canadian, up, uh, yeah. yeah, if you're a Canadian in um, trouble here in Kiev, uh, good luck. You have to phone a certain phone number. A lot of the services are now still being done out of Warsaw you know, and in fairness, they cohabitate a building with the Australians. The Australians have not reopened their embassy. Canada sort of did. But I think it's time to follow Turkey, Portugal and other countries and fully staff uh, that embassy. It's it's about time. Yeah, it feels like oftentimes there just isn't a plan. I mean, th- I mean, that's what it boils down to. It's sort of all kind right. of reactionary. You know, I was, Michael, one of, the, I, one of the things I remember vividly is all the interviews that you gave nine years ago mm. Monday with the downing of MH17. And it's a real reminder, 298 people killed when that uh, flight yeah. from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur was shot down by a surface-to-air missile over rebel-held territory in eastern Ukraine. A reminder that the real tragedies of this war and the, and the indiscriminate killing of this war began a long time ago, began nine years ago, even more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, you're right, 298, including passengers and crew. The uh, Netherlands took a big hit. I was there recently, and it's very much on people's minds. They say this is a tragedy that um, touches pretty much every family in the Netherlands, Australians as well. And this was the biggest single death toll from the war, if we look at it from starting from 2014, of so many foreigners. Since that time, sadly, and I don't mean to sound negative all the time, but I think little has happened in terms of 
improving aviation safety, um, what are procedures for flying in or around conflict zones, especially if they happen quickly, which they tend to do. Then the other thing is um, there's a very big feeling that the wheels of justice are turning very slowly. There's that M817, but there's also, remember, PS752, the Ukrainian airliner that was shut down over Tehran, a lot of Canadians on there. So at least um, with the M817 case in the Netherlands at The Hague, uh, there were originally four suspects. Um, One was let off, uh, but three were convicted. Um, They're believed to be either in Russia or in Russian-occupied territory. Um, There is a concern that they will never see a day behind bars. But I like to tell people, remind people rather, that folks, folks get careless over time. And uh, they may, I don't know, go through, go to the Maldives to go sun themselves, transit through a country which is a signatory to this, and then get picked up. And the other thing, um, Ben, by the way, just anecdotally, when I was in London, um, I spoke to uh, an official from the Foreign Affairs Office about this process of uh, seizing Russian assets. That seems to be going slowly as well. But he brought up an interesting point. He said, you know, a lot of these guys who have been sanctions, oligarchs or whoever, or people in Putin's circle, they're in their 60s or so. And do they want to, you know, live the rest of their lives under such a threat of being arrested and, you know, having um, their property taken away? So he said that maybe in time they will become in, mood, in a mood for a deal where, yes, they will hand over their assets in return for a light sentencing or maybe another passport somewhere. So I, I thought that was very interesting too. So that could give people some hope too. Michael, as always, thank you so much. Most welcome. My pleasure. Hello, my name is Richard Armstrong. I'm a member of the seven bands of the Okanagan Nation. and Welcome to our territory. Yeah, it's amazing when you listen to Indigenous languages in this country, how rich they are. We have this incredible body of languages in this country that uh, were nearly were nearly disappeared and have been making a revival of late. And it is a really rich part of this land's heritage, these languages that have existed for centuries and centuries and centuries and beyond. Uh, that was Richard Armstrong, as he said, member of the seven bands of the Okanagan Nation, saying welcome to our territory in, and I'm hoping to pronounce this properly because I've been trying this, uh, Silk is the is the Okanagan Nation. The language, I believe, is is in Silkson, but I, I don't think I got that right. I'll, someone is about to correct me in a few seconds here, so we should be good. But it's all part of welcoming UBC's Okanagan campus's uh, announcement a while back that they have a bachelor uh, in the Silicon language fluency at the university. Uh, the campus is, of course, located on the territory of the Silicon Okanagan Nation, and it is the first university in the country to offer a bachelor's degree in Indigenous language fluency. Um, it was created in collaboration with the Nicola Valley Institute of Technology and the Anakin Center. It's designed to work closely with the community to provide a comprehensive and high-quality education in the language, the language spoken uh, by the nation, and, of course, to promote new fluent speakers. I was reading that there weren't a lot of speakers until recently under the age of 50, so a language that needs to not only be uh, promoted, but also preserved. Uh, I believe this was the sound of the first eight graduates of the program getting the first ever bachelor's degree from the program just recently.
certainly sounds a lot more celebratory than my grad was. Uh, Jeanette Armstrong at UBC Okanagan helped create the degree program. It is the latest in a push, again, in an effort to protect and revive Indigenous languages. Uh, she is an Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Okanagan Indigenous Knowledge and Philosophy at UBC's Okanagan campus. And she joins me now. Jeanette, thank you so much for your time. Hello. Good evening. Apologies for my bad pronunciation. I've been trying for days now because we were supposed to speak yesterday and you had a storm hit you yesterday uh, to try and get the difference between Silk, the nation, and the language, the way the language is pronounced. And I couldn't find it anywhere. So I thought I would defer to your to your expertise. Oh, you did really well. Uh, you actually uh, pronounced it very, very close to how it, uh, it said. We're Silk people and our language is in Silk. Oh, good. Okay, so that's uh, I actually did that by reading the phonetic pronunciation of each letter in the alphabet, and then trying to approximate what it would sound like. Uh, it is such a, a, a it's it's a remarkable sounding language. I was really struck by "way" being the word for hello, because of course "way" is the word for hello in Mandarin, right, and in Cantonese as well to some extent. Which I, I know they're not closely related. Where does the language come from? Well, the language um, is part of a larger group of uh, languages that are related, that originated from one original language, and they're called the Salishan language or Salishan languages. And there's 25, as I understand, here in the interior of British Columbia and Washington State and Idaho and, and Montana, and, uh, of course, in uh, half of British Columbia and out to the uh, Vancouver Island um, the, the Straits uh, Shalishan. Tell me a bit about the uh, inspiration for setting up this degree program. I know it uh, it was recommended. It was one of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to go ahead with these sorts of programs. But tell me a bit about how this one came about. And it is the first, I gather, in the country to offer a bachelor's degree, at least, in influency. That's right. One of the um, reasons that um, I worked uh, at the time with uh, the Indigenous Adult Higher Learning Association, which is a uh, an association of uh, uh, Indigenous-controlled and governed learning cent- adult learning centers in the province. And so there's about 30 or 40 of those in the province, and they um, deliver programs that are relevant to their own communities. And so an Alcan Center was one of them. And I was at the time um, working half-time there and half-time at UBC and and uh, spent a lot of time with other institutes, you know, other of the IALA institutions and worked together with the First Nation Education Steering Committee that represents the political voice uh, in advanced education and in, you know, uh, elementary education and middle school education, uh, the voice of the chiefs to the government of uh, the province of British Columbia, and they um, asked for a way to be able to bring um, the program into the public post-secondary institutions. So um, we uh, worked together with a number of um, other public institutions to develop a framework that was approved by the ministry, uh, by the Ministry of Advanced Education in B.C., so that framework is a framework that can work in any one of the public institutions now that can you know that want to that uh, want to deliver uh, the, the a bachelor's degree that allows for students adult students to uh, go into the program and through the four years 
focus mainly on learning the language, learning the structure of the language, learning to speak the language, as well as uh, the knowledge in the different areas that um, any language can be, you know, can be brought to in terms of the um, way that academic disciplines are are situated in in a university. How has the interest been so far? And who's signing up? Who's um, who's 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 taking an interest in learning? We have uh, uh, seven communities, um, seven uh, communities here in the Seelk Nation on the on the Canadian side of the border, and, and quite a few in the in the uh, on on the Washington State side because half of the Seelkton speaking people are on the Wash in the Colville Confederated Tribe, and so we do have a a cohort there in the Colville Confederated Tribe as well. And uh, so they're signing up, and we have, um, I think we have over 100 students signed up in the different levels, first year, second year, third year, and fourth year. Of course, the first two years are delivered uh, to cohorts within the communities, within their communities with fluent speakers, and that's the way it's structured. It's, It's really unique and different in that in that way, in that we bring the university to the communities, right. to the learners in the communities, because that's where they're going to get the support, and and that's where you know the their, the language resides and belongs. Yeah, so much easier. I mean, I, I've taken languages in, in in classroom settings in the past, and it's tough to learn a language in a classroom. It's much easier to learn it if you're immersed in it, especially one that, um, you know, one where that it's it's not something you will have heard many times before if you're just learning it for the if you're just hearing and learning it for the first time. That's right, and it's structured so that uh, at the entry level, the main focus is to bring students to feel comfortable about not knowing the language and to feel yeah. comfortable about learning the pronunciation and the sounds because we have so many more sounds than English does. For instance, we have 46 separate sounds where I think English in the alphabet has 26. Mm-hmm. And so some of the sounds are very, very foreign and different if you have not um, spoken it or if you, even if you've heard it, it's still you have to find the places in your mouth and in your throat you know, to be able to make the sounds. And so yeah. that takes a lot of work and a lot of patience. And so the four years is really necessary for students to be able to accomplish, you know, the proficiency levels um, and also the fluency levels. Fluency being, you know, um, the, the fluency being able to use it in any context that um, yeah, but, you would use English in, for instance. Yeah, and that that's a tall order in a four-year program. Even in a four-year program with a lot of immersion, that's 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 challenging as well. Um, when you when you uh, with people who've taken it, um, are they from I mean, the interest in it? Must be pretty high, right? But it's it's a it it is a challenging. It sounds like a challenging program. It is um, in some ways it's challenging, but I've heard from the students that it's really transforming. Um, in a number of ways, one in it, it is cohort driven, meaning that um, every every class is a cohort that uh, is encouraged to uh, become um, helpers of each other, and so um, and and you know to be able to do their homework together, to be able to speak together in smaller groups um, in the learning situation. And to be able to uh, provide that the kind of um, the the kind of friendship that 
developed uh, through cohort learning. And so every every class is a cohort, and and they move upward as a cohort from the first year certificate program to the second year diploma, and and they do that uh, as I said um, in as a part of the uh, community delivery. Some of it is virtual, um, and some of it is in person. So uh, they the, the courses all most most of the courses are hybrid in that way, so that it provides some uh, some differences in in uh, the access to the to the course. So you're not in the classroom. You can be at home with your family, and they're listening in. Um, or helping, or, or you can have a mentor with you, and they're helping you as as you're, you know, as you're part of the virtual session. And we also right. bring fluent speaker mentors um, in person when they're together, and and so there's um, different kinds of ways. And we also take them out on the land uh, to, you know, learn in in the context of. Uh, the kinds of uh, things that seal people do. We pick berries, we dig roots, we we go fishing, um, and so a lot of that, a lot of the courses in the spring months and in the early fall months are, you know, are spent outdoors, and everybody right. loves that. I mean, it's, it's Lear- learning to use the way. words properly. Yeah. Jeanette Armstrong is with us this half hour from UBC's Okanagan campus. We're talking about a program that she's had a big hand in helping create the first of its kind in the country. It's a bachelor's degree in Indigenous language fluency, the uh, Silk Okanagan Nation, or it's, it's in Silksen, which I'll try to get right again, uh, language fluency. We've been talking about the students, how it's done. It's very immersive. It's very about taking people out into the community and learning, hearing it firsthand and so on. Um, Jeanette, it must be really nice for you to hear so people sort of speaking the language again, because I was reading earlier that for a while there, very few people under the age of 50 spoke it anymore. And now you're seeing larger, you're going to hear the language in the hallways, so to speak. That's right. It's really exciting to the elder members of our community to be able to sit with them and converse. And um, I, myself, it was it's very emotional uh, to, um, you know, to hear even the third year, second year students engaging with each other and engaging with you know with the elders that uh, are fluent and and i i just would you know that the model itself i think is a model that can be used by any public institution um and it needs to be done our languages uh, you know are 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 in danger in so many places and i think um, you know the pu- public post secondary institutions really are, you know, responsible for uh, providing education that, uh, you know, that that can uh, help reconcile and repair some of the damages that public education and, you know, and, 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 and residential school education helped to eradicate some of the languages. So for me, um, it, it is really an important uh, step in 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 bringing health and and bringing wellness back to our people, and coming through that trauma, and you can really see the difference uh, that it has made in those students, the confidence they have, and and the healing that they've gone through, um, just through being able to acquire what is theirs, you know, that yeah. their right to their language is um, is protected. 
And so that, I think, is something that, uh, for me, I'd, I'd like to everybody in Canada to hear about and celebrate and, um, you know, find ways to do something similar in their in their public institutions. And, and it's really important that adults be engaged because uh, even if you have it in the, you know, in the schools, like in the elementary school or the middle school, um, it's not sustainable because you don't have people at home speaking it. You don't have adults using it. And in this particular process, the adults also have, uh, in their fourth year, an opportunity to um, to do internships in their communities to develop, um, you know, to work and to uh, develop a, a, a way in which they can deliver and contribute to language learning in their communities. And they also have a, a capstone project in their fourth year that they can engage in to to do more research and to develop uh, products that can that you know can be utilized in the communities, whether it's in the daycare or whether it's in the you know in the band operated schools or in the public schools. So there's so many right. ways that it's contributing to revitalize language, and and I think that's really an an important part of it that it yeah. gives back to the community the ability to be able to move forward through adults. And, 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 and because it is credited in the public institutions, then they, they're eligible for scholarships and they're eligible for you know, funding that will help them uh, pay the tuition and that will help them. And it's sustainable because you know, they're, lear- they're full-time students and the full-time student is learning every day of the week, which yeah. is very different than, you know, like a, a small little program that you're looking at maybe an hour a week or something like that, or a camp right. once a year or something. Well, it's Jeanette... Very, very different, very intensive, and, and it I works... Think, uh... Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I, I did learn to count. I think Nax Asil Kachis Moose Chilkst. I was trying to do that today. It wasn't working That's really so well. really good, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeanette, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much for this interview. I think it's an important one. <laughs> the 70s. What a great time it was. Um, but imagine watching a commercial like that and being inspired in some ways to go beyond just brushing, but collecting. And my next guest, who lives near Toronto, ha- now owns the Guinness World Record for the largest toothbrush collection anywhere. It's something she began quite young. Uh, she now has more than 1,600 packaged toothbrushes in her collection. That was certified as the world record back in March. So how do you set about, how did toothbrushes become the thing that she wanted to collect? How did she go about collecting so many of them? Where does she find them? And what is her favorite one? Kelly Hardy, toothbrush collector and Guinness World Record holder joins me now. Kelly, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's great to be here. 
what an interesting, I mean, people collect all kinds of stuff. It's always interesting to see those Guinness records, of course, but this one is great as a great one. How did it all be? When did it all begin? How did it all begin? Uh, yeah. So it actually began when I was a kid and I always say that there was a bit of a false start to my collection. So when I was in grade three, I remember that I had accumulated a few toothbrushes through the dentist, through Santa leaving one in my stocking. The hygienist used to come in your school. So I remember I had about seven and I kept them in a little cup. But I think maybe I was too young to know what collecting was back then. And then one day I had discovered that my family had used up all those toothbrushes. And I was really, really mad at them, um, but didn't start adding anything until a few years later when I was probably about 12 years old. I remember going to uh, the Heinzels in Oshawa mm-hmm. and seeing this toothbrush there that had floss built into the handle. Wow. And I just thought that was so interesting. Like, oh, they've combined the floss and the brushing. That and is so cool. I never bought it right away, but then eventually it was calling to me and I said, okay, I, I really want that. And it was reminding me of the toothbrushes that I had uh, when I was younger. And then I kind of put two and two together. It's like, oh, I'm a toothbrush collector. So then I just, you know, started buying the ones that I could afford and thought were interesting. Um, and it just has continued for 30 plus years now. Yeah. What What do you like about them? I mean, what is it? They are quite, if you look at them, they, they, they're sort of built for the hand. They've got certainly gotten more elaborate since I was young. I remember when I was a kid, they were pretty straight, pretty straightforward. They're much nicer now. But, but what do you like about the about the toothbrush? Um, I like they come in so many varieties. There's lots that just the design itself, the way certain things are angled, the color of them are interesting. There's a lot of uh, cultural tie-ins. So you can find TV shows, movies, sports teams, things like that. Sometimes I find the packaging itself really interesting or just the shape. So I play softball. So I have one that's shaped like a baseball bat. Or I have one that's like a hockey stick. So I don't know. They just, there's so many varieties. And then, yes, there's some that are very kind of plain and ordinary, but they're all special to me. And, and, and do you, uh, where do you find them? Do you, I mean, I suppose there were, if you just bought them online, you'd probably be able to find anything you wanted and just order them as often as you want. Do you have any rules around, do you need to find them in a store? Do you, do you, when you go away on vacation, do you always go to the nearest pharmacy to have a quick look to see if there's anything special? You can find a toothbrush anywhere. So I, and I feel like I've really honed my sense of where toothbrushes might be. So when I travel, yes, definitely we'll go to the, the local pharmacy or grocery store. Um, dollar stores are a great source of toothbrushes, even convenience stores, because um, a lot of times they'll have inventory that doesn't turn over very fast. So if right. you uh, go in one, you'll find. Um, but then, you know, just regular stores. And then, yes, uh, online shopping now has made uh, acquiring toothbrushes from around the world uh, really easy. And eBay is actually a great source uh, for really interesting toothbrushes. So if you search vintage toothbrush on eBay, uh, which I probably spend more time doing than I care to admit, um, you can find some really interesting ones there too. Right. I mean, vintage, so, so ones that are still in the packaging that might be 30, 20, 30, 40 years old. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I get turned off by the shipping costs. Uh, so a lot of times I'll let <laughs> yeah. things go that I really, really want. Um, but I keep all my toothbrushes in the package. I never use them because um, I just I just want to keep them brand new and pristine. Right. 1,618 was the number that I saw. And that, it turns out, and I didn't know there was such a world record, but clearly there is. That yes. is a world record. 
Yes. Uh, yes, the existing world record was 1,320. Uh, that was held by a gentleman in Russia. And I actually didn't know it was a world record until my oldest daughter uh, back in March of 2022 was reading the 2021 edition of Guinness World Records and said, Mom, look, there's a, a toothbrush collection record here. <laughs> you thought you were alone. You're not. I, I know. I said, oh, and I said, I bet I have about a thousand. And so the record was 1,320. I said, I I think I could do it. I, so I uh, I made it my goal. And then uh, for uh, the rest of 2022, I was very, very um, scouring the internet, every grocery store, Walmart, dollar stores, anywhere I could think of to find a toothbrush. Right. Do they have to, I guess they would have to be different, right? You'd have to have uh, 1,600 and some unique ones, right? They can't be, obviously they can't be, because every dentist would win then, because it can't be all the same brush, obviously. Exactly. Um, when you apply to set a girl, uh, world record, Guinness sends you the list of specific guidelines that you have to follow. So for a collection, there has to be no duplicates. Um, I had to clarify if you have four toothbrushes in a package, but they're different colors, even though there's the same brand, the same model, does that count as four distinct toothbrushes? And fortunately, yes, it does. It does. Oh, okay. not, if, if it didn't, I would not have the record. Where do you keep your collection, by the way, at home? Where is it? Not in the bathroom, uh, I don't expect. Yeah, I I used to display them. So when I was a kid and well into my early adult years, I I had them on display now that it's much, much bigger. Um, and I have many other things going on in life. I don't have the time to dust them that I once used to. So they actually are just in storage totes. Um, in our basement. But they actually, I think it's preserving them much better than having them on display was. Right. And you had to bring them somewhere to actually sort of lay them out and then have them judged so that you would get this get this world title. Yeah. So one of the guidelines uh, for your evidence is that you have to submit a video, one continuous video, it can't stop, of you counting the toothbrushes. Um, so uh, I asked the principal at my Wow, children's- that's a lot of counting. Uh, if, if we could borrow the gym, set up yeah. tables in there and lay them all out. So I think we had about 14 folding tables full of toothbrushes and my coworker Ida helped me out and, uh, alternating tables as we counted. And it took about 40 minutes to count them all. And it was the most intense thing I had ever done in my life. I, ca- I can't believe how stressful it was, uh, doing that count. Remark. I think you had to wait several weeks for word that, that in fact you were it, you had you had done it. Yes, that that was uh, it took about 13 weeks. So I submitted my evidence late in March and then just heard back on, I believe it was June 15th, that I, in fact, had got the record. And that was one of the happiest days of my life. It's such a cool story. What do you think about it? Uh, What has it brought you uh, over time? Because you could have spent that time doing something else. You could have collected something different. I mean, lots of people collect different stuff. What do you think? This whole, and this has been going, I mean, this is dedication, right? It's not like you started a few years ago and just accumulated a lot because you, you know, went on a buying spree. You've been doing this since you were, really, since you were seven. Yeah. Um, I think what it's brought me is um, a way to connect with people. Uh, My collection is as big as it is through the generosity of my family and friends. Because a toothbrush is a really easy ask. Oh, hey, you're going to this country I've never been in before. Right. Buy me a toothbrush because they're small, they're light, they're inexpensive. It's brought, it's, you know, it's a good story to tell. It's something that people usually find interesting. Um, And I don't know that they understood the scale at which I collected it until I kind of shared a bit more about it uh, when I I was 
kind of on my Facebook page, uh, taking people along for the journey of setting a world record. So people are like, I did, I didn't know that you had this collection. Wow. I, I, everyone must know when they go away to look for you though, to, to look around. I mean, you sort of have this, you have this army now of, of friends and family who can go out and do this for you. It's great. Yeah. And you know what? I think some of them love it. My younger sister actually um, throughout this period, she really got into it and got really excited um, when she'd find me ones that I didn't have. So uh, she she was right in there with me on it. Yeah. You must have taken a bit of ribbing over the years for it. I can only imagine. It's tough. It's tough when you have sort of a, a, a like that's not completely mainstream, as a, even as a teenager, right? Well, it was one of those things that I, I always knew that I got a lot of enjoyment. And actually, just I really like looking for toothbrushes. And then uh, I like looking at my toothbrushes just because I think they're so interesting. And I have a lot of good memories attached to when I bought one or who gave it to me. Um, so I never worried that people thought it was weird because I don't know. I just think in life, you just have to do what makes you happy and well, don't worry about what you think is mainstream. Just that's, that's good. Advi- that's good advice. No matter what you're talking about, right? You must have some favorite. Well, you talked about that great one with the floss built in. Uh, what are some of your favorite ones? You must have some really coveted ones. Um, yeah. I think some of the favorite ones are things that, tied to other favorite things of mine. So um, as I mentioned, I play softball. And when I was growing up, I was a catcher. So I have one that's actually a catcher. Um, so the holder is a catcher. And then the uh, toothbrush has a baseball in, on the Oh, inside. wow. Yeah. Um, I love the Simpsons. So I have some Simpsons ones. And I have some from the early 90s when they were just hitting their popularity um, that I really like. I like you know, the Toronto Blue Jays. So I have Blue Jays ones. I have Harry Potter ones, Cookie Monster ones. And then there's ones that are just uniquely designed. So there's ones that have three heads on them. So you can brush all sides of your teeth at the same time. Oh, wow. Wow, Um, That sounds complicated. And I actually got a six headed one uh, last year where you can brush, you know, the top and the bottom all sides at once. Wow. So So things like that, where you're just like, that's, that's a different way to design a toothbrush. It is. Any coveted ones? Any ones that sort of are missing from the collection that you've had your eye on for a long time? Um, there is. The one that I would love to get is when I had that first set that my family ended up using. One of the toothbrushes was from when the dental hygienist used to come visit your class. You get a little, yeah, I like, that. A, yes. crest, a little crest gift bag. Yep. And it had in there a toothbrush that was shaped like an alligator. Ah, I think I think I remember those. Yes. Yes. And I did not have one. And I've seen it on eBay a few times. And I think that's one of the ones that I'm like, oh, the shipping, it's it's like $25 to ship it. Um, but I think that I think when this all settles down, I think I might have to go find that one. It is remarkable that of the more than 1600 you have, the one you want is one you've already owned. And it happened to be that little, the one you had when you first started. I know. I, that's the one. I, and it, mine mine was blue. I remember it to this day. And I think that's the one I was the maddest about that my family used. Right. What will you do with the, what, what What happens to the collection? I mean, I guess, I guess it's it's in the basement now, right? So it's in, it's tucked away and, and, you know, it's not, but what do you, are you going to continue doing this for, uh, you got a lot of years to go, right? Uh, yeah. So I have, um, you know, since March, I have been still buying toothbrushes. I think what I, I, you know, I picked up the pace uh, trying to set up the world record. But in doing that, I kind of remembered how much fun it was for me to do it. So I'm still out there looking. And right now, I feel like I have kind of pulled everything out of the market that's currently available commercially. So I have to do the things like eBay and curate it a bit more. But 
in the long run, it will be up to, I think I'll hold on to it for the rest of my life. Then my right. children will get to decide what they want to do with it. Oh, but I always a... say the great about toothbrushes is that it's a technology that's probably never going to be. So even at the end of my life, if my children don't want it, they can always just donate them to charity. Right. They could they could be used as, as actual toothbrushes. What about you? I mean, the invariable question, I'm sure everyone asks you this, but what toothbrush do you use? I know. And it's always a very boring answer. And it's always been just the one that my dentist gives, gives me. There you go. Kelly, thank you so much. Oh, this has been great. Thank you.